0: sports professor Rick Haro, and we are on the record every week this podcast will take you inside the 1.3 trillion dollar business of sports the top deal making issues the top tech issues and the top social responsibility issues plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports but having a profound effect on its impact let's get started Sports professor Rick Harlow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. And it's a big week. It's more than the $1.3 trillion this year when gambling hits a few more states in America, like Massachusetts, just in time for Super Bowl, Final Four, NFL playoffs, and otherwise. We'll tackle the deal-making issues of the week, 3-1. to one. Three. The inaugural ILT20 match received about a 27.9 million viewership on TV. Z's linear channels and online services, Z5, delivering the action to the audience, the Abu Dhabi Night Riders versus the Dubai Capitals, a combined viewership. About 27.8 million, the business development folks say they're very pleased with it. The Emirates Cricket Board, the sponsors, the teams, the players... Excited about it, bottom line is the Z companies and media entities provided significant sponsorship for this event, Now, obviously going to a part of the world where there is avid, not only cricket, but avid potential and room to grow. 2. Manchester City is the wealthiest soccer team in the world. They reigned supreme for the second year in a row. They've retained their position as the highest revenue-generating soccer team at about $794 million for last season, according to the Deloitte Football Money League study, a 13% increase over last year. The top 20 wealthiest clubs in the world generated about $9.9 billion, and for the first time, 11 of the Premier League 20 teams were part of that group. La Liga's Real Madrid, second, Liverpool, third, owned by City Football Group, Man City's Growth in Revenue, comes as the club mulls expanding the capacity of Etihad Stadium. They're conducting studies to determine the viability of a development project, a museum, a hotel, the capacity of 53400 and they also think that more is on the way. Sports generated about $146 billion in Florida economic impact over the past two years also supporting 978,000 full and part-time jobs. Sports industry, the economic impact, according to the Florida Sports Foundation commissioned study by research firm Tourism Economics. The findings of the report show the governor's strategy prioritizes access to golf courses, beaches, hiking trails, and other recreational venues. The Florida sports industry drew more than 28 million non-resident visitors to the state, 14% 14% of all state tourism and professional sports amounted to more than $10 billion in economic impact. College sports, another $5.5 billion. The state's 36 sports commissions operate with support from the Florida Sports Foundation, generated about $25 billion in total economic impact. Just one of 50 states, but a state that has been fairly to very aggressive in promoting tourism. And obviously, it's generated significant impact timely presentation for our podcast this week, the 50-year anniversary of the sports business, Sports Business at 50, Lessons in Leadership from Legends of the Game, which corresponded to my book, The Sport Business Handbook, as you know, had a presentation in uh, New York in September, Nashville in uh, uh, November, again, looking at Super Bowl, Final Four, NASCAR event in Charlotte, and on and on. We had a Business Leadership Council event in December in Palm Beach. The significance was not just mixing the 50-year business of the North American market and global market with the generation of significant income in Florida and South Florida using sports as a business development tool. A little biased, I obviously began my sports world in south florida about 50 years ago overcoming the presumption of failure people coming from elsewhere to help get the new at that point miami arena done panthers floridians turning into the heat hockey from the panthers to where they are today in sunrise and the marlins gary bettman with the nhl and the nba at the time baseball wayne Heisinger. Uh, moving forward from a local perspective to a national perspective, then the pandemic, then recovering. The message, I think, applies now in the future from lessons from the past. So we thought it might be important to give you all a little bit of the presentation from that Business Leadership Council talking about the sports business, the pandemic, and moving on. Fifty years ago, about. Um, I'm, uh, uh, you know, around high school age, let's just say that, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in Miami and, uh, you know, I'm looking at what we can do to bring more sports to town. And uh, the evolution has been really interesting. Uh, we had a presumption of failure in South Florida. There were 27 arenas, stadiums, teams, ownership groups in the five major sports, from 1950 to 1983, uh, and we can all name them, or some of us can name them, all destined to have their articles and headlines in the newspaper, and here comes major sports in town. Well, the interesting thing is they didn't happen, so the presumption of failure really significant. We also had about two million people, a million eight, but in three different worlds. I remember when I was starting, in the line of creating some things in South Florida, you know, God, you'd never get on the turnpike because you couldn't get off in Palm Beach County. You had to get your passport, you had to check in, and you had to go somewhere else. If you're in downtown Miami, and, you know, why would people in Palm Beach ever before tri-rail or anything else go down to Miami? So it didn't feel like two million people. And the more important thing, I would say, transplants. Uh, everybody was from somewhere else. We all gave from the in the office. If you looked at teams in South Florida, well, yeah, I remember him from Pittsburgh, or I remember them from New York. You're a Yankee fan. You're a Met fan. You're not a Marlin fan. It didn't exist, but you know, uh, you know, you, you, it was hard to do. So that was where the community was, and I was. And oh, by the way, um, the um, idea was also that. Uh, we didn't have any experience with major league teams. Now, true, the Miami Dolphins were created in 1966, but remember, they merged in as an American football league team and then won the Super Bowl uh, in the early years of the NFL-AFL merger. The Joe Namath game basically ushered in the harmony between the AFL and the NFL and then merged all of the games shortly thereafter. So we had no experience in the 70s up to the mid-'80s of bringing in major league professional sports franchises and making them our own. Well, had a really interesting perception. So memory lane a little bit. Tell you how worn I am on stuff. So you look at Miami uh, and basketball. That shirt was the design that we tried out when we brought the Miami Heat ad campaign to. David Stern in the NBA, and we were trying to sell season tickets to prove we were worthy. And by the way, little tip, I wore that shirt in the mid-80s, have not washed it since. Good idea, stay away. It led to the Miami Arena, the scissor cutting of the old Miami Arena. I'll tell that story in a couple of minutes. The ticket next to it is a 1966 Miami Marlin, yeah, that's what they were called, Florida State League team. Cal Ripken's dad was a the manager. They were playing in the old Miami Stadium in downtown Miami, which was turned into a rescue center after the Overtown riots. And nobody ever kind of went there since, but we built a solid foundation. Hockey, how many of you all remember The Rat? You remember The Rat? Not a lot of you. The Panthers went an unprecedented way, way beyond their expectation in the early years of expansion. Florida Panthers. Uh, went into the arena that we built as a temporary arena, everybody knows. But that rat was what you threw on the ice after goals were scored. And it became a craze. Nobody knew about hockey, but they knew about rats. And that was a big deal then. It's, that's not live, but it's symbolic. And then 10-year anniversary of the Florida Panthers, that puck. And then finally, that is the original soil <laughs> at the Orange Bowl, way back there. And what it turned into, when you think about it, is the Dolphins, obviously, place to play. Joe Robbie Stadium, Jimmy Buffett's, Margaritaville Stadium, whatever it used to be called, and now Hard Rock, all the events it has. But when you think about it, that first ticket, that's the first ticket the Miami Dolphins ever played. game, 1966, Don Shula autographed it. I have it in my wallet every day. You can tell it's worn. Museum people are saying, what do you have it in your wallet? Well, it's an emotional thing for me. When you think about it, that got me into sports. Because in uh, 1966, my dad was dying of cancer. I didn't know it. He uh, called me uh, to his room at Mount Sinai Hospital, gave me that plus the season ticket strip, and said, we're going to go to games, and it's going to be wonderful and you're going to enjoy football and professional sports. He knew he wasn't going to make it, and he didn't. And from that day on, there are four 50-yard line seats at the stadium now with his name under it. And when I'm at the owner's suite, we always look to make sure the interlopers are removed from those seats, which, by the way, a lot easier today uh, because it's fashionable to go, and there are a lot more people. We love to get out of there. But that's. my original kind of foray into South Florida sports. Went to Northwestern University, went to Harvard Law School. Um, I went to many hockey games in Chicago at Northwestern. Those of you who grew up in the North, which probably everybody, remembers when hockey fighting was legal and uh, encouraged in a hockey game. Today, it is, but not as much. And I'm thinking as a Miamian, great game, but that's not sports very naive, went to Harvard Law, time to choose a third year thesis. And I said, hey, how about this? Criminal law, I like the guy I play squash with. He's my criminal law professor. And how about excessive violence in the criminal law? Harmless, an idea of tying it into sports. I can do surveys at games. And that will be the first thesis in sports law, sports business ever done at Harvard Law School. Jim Vornberg, may he rest in peace, was then the criminal law professor, and then the dean at Harvard Law said, wait, not so fast. That's a great idea, but, quote, there is no such thing as sports law or sports business. Oh, really? Well, all right, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bet you um, if I win a squash game, never played. Think it's a vegetable, never played the game. If I win, uh, you're going to let me go to, uh, Boston Garden and Schaefer Stadium and all those places, Fenway, and do surveys and research, knock myself out, spend all my time on a third-year thesis, and be the first one. If you win, I'm going to suck it up, do corporate tax, all the crap that corporate lawyers normally do. No offense, but, you know, I can say it in that context. He said, you're on. Six months of training. Went down to Dunster House, a a uh, small, uh, you, you know, Harvard, and... Uh, You know, this is relevant because I would say this defined the business of sports law, so just hear the rest of the story out. Found a guy who, um, you know, nice enough, minded his own business, practicing squash, He said, hey, let me tell you the deal here. Um, He was a Harvard Law guy, found out in my section, and he coached me for four months. Beat the hell out of the professor. Turned out the professor was 80 years old, but, uh, you know, that's a fairly irrelevant detail. And my coach and lifelong friend and ultimate roommate uh, was John Roberts, who's the Chief Justice. So it is a you know, small world. So John Roberts founded sports law. He wouldn't want to say that now. He's kind of in hiding for a little while. So the bottom line was what happens after that? Well, I realized that's a business. So do I go to a law firm or uh, you know, do the building on what I've got? Came back to Miami went to a law firm called Paul and Thompson, significant law firm. Uh, And at the end of the day, it just wasn't right for me. So I went to Joe Robbie, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, and said, I wanted to find a field of sports law. And I had Nick Bonaconti, who used to play middle linebacker for the Dolphins, friendly with Bob Graham, who said, let's create a structure to build a sports authority that would then build arenas and stadiums and attract professional sports. And Joe said, good idea, five grand. And I said, hmm, five grand a a, a month, and then Paul and Thompson will pay X, and Robbie will pay X, and maybe Bob Graham gets state money. And he said, no, no, five grand a year. And I'm thinking, do you want uh, want fries with that uh, burger uh, that you're flipping? And so I made a decision fairly quickly to do it. Long story short, because I want to get to other stuff, Bob Graham helped set the Sports Authority up. It's the old-time political guard. Uh, some of those names you'll see in uh, names around bridges. Some of the names you would see on wanted posters. But whatever it is, it's the way typically politics are done in Miami. And Bob Graham said, look, I love you. I want to do this with you. This will be very, very important. But I'm going to Washington. I'm a senator. so by, call me if you need me, <laughs> it's like we're trying to build something with a town that nobody's ever built an arena before and I'm 25 years old and we're putting this together. Long story short, I was hired and fired 17 times literally by nine different sports authorities, we constituted one in Miami, then Dade, we actually did South Florida and we cajoled the uh, executives uh, uh, in the enabling legislation to add two ex officio non-voting members Uh, from uh, Palm Beach County because, you know, God, they're subhuman. You know, why would they absolutely be involved in all of this? And we created a structure of a $40 million arena without a team. So it's April 21st, 1987. Got Ted Erison, who's Mickey's dad, Carnival Cruise Lines, convinced him, though he didn't know if a basketball was stuffed or blown up, But he did know that it's very important economically to bring sports to his community. And that was what he told the commissioner. And the commissioner, David Stern, said, all right, come up and we'll negotiate. I brought Lou Shafell, Billy Cunningham, the other guys with the Heat, and uh, 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 and, uh, uh, Ted Erison to meet uh, David Stern, the commissioner. And David said, Well, what are you here for? He said, I I want to buy a franchise. And uh, David Stern said, $32.5 million. Uh, Now, remember, this was uh, 87. Uh, Charlotte, Miami, excuse me, Charlotte, Orlando, Minnesota were the designated three, but we needed a fourth. And the richest man in South Florida got up and walked away from the meeting, didn't say a word. And I'm sitting there with David Stern talking about the weather, and the commissioner said, Look Rick, I know you, I respect you, I'm not the one you should be talking to. You should, you know, get your guy, he's in the elevator. Longest seven minutes of my life, comes back and he says, quote, well, you know what, commissioner, I went across the street to try to buy an NBA franchise, but oh, there is no such place that sells NBA franchises across the street. I guess I have to deal with you. He took out his checkbook, 32 and a half million, no terms, I don't care what anybody else says, that's how the heat was born. And so it's 1987. We're now working on other sports. NHL, because Gary Bettman, who was the commissioner and a friend, was the number three guy at the NBA who cleared expansion hurdles for communities. So he was the guy that concocted the idea of bringing David Stern's mom from a condo in South Beach to a preseason game of the Heat to be heat. Actually, it was the Washington Wizards an exhibition game, and bring her a rose and say, "This is from your future Miami candidates." And David Stern was saying, "You you have no no right to get my mom involved in your expansion stuff." And Gary Bettman said, "You got his attention. That's great." So Gary, long story short, was the guy that drove the NHL deal as commissioner. Um, baseball was another story. We had to have the baseball franchise. We almost had the deal done, except for one material thing. John McMullen, who was the owner of the Astros, who was the head of the expansion committee, said that he knew South Florida very well. So as you normally do, we catered this bring baseball to South Florida, had stone crabs on the table, everybody ready to do it. And he took a stone crab and bit into it like a ham sandwich, and we said, hey, Mr. McMillan, he said, no, don't tell me how to eat food, son. I've been eating food before you were born, at which point three of his teeth dropped out on on the floor. And we thought, no baseball in Miami. Well, the commonality between baseball and hockey was Wayne Heisinger. Wayne didn't get enough credit when he was alive and has not gotten enough credit when he's passed. And the whole idea of what happens When you set your life on creating these franchises, we were all stage setters, but he was the money. And so we have to thank him, but it all came into place. And now it's the um, 80s, 90s. And you're thinking about a broader sports business perspective. The industry itself, close to a trillion dollars. Now it's 1.3 trillion. It's visible, it's global, It's diverse, controversial, highly scrutinized. The difference between Jim Vornberg, my squash partner, saying there's no such thing as sports law, and today, 80s, and then today, are the zeros, the visibility. Everybody has an opinion. And now, we have 450 schools all over the world, Kaiser involved and others, in sports law, sports administration, sports stuff. So in the 80s and 90s, we are moving along really well. We had four franchises, they were all winning championships, on and on. Then March 11, 2020, Rudy Gobert, Utah Jazz, right before his game in Oklahoma City, tests positive for COVID. And within two days, the entire industry shuts down. ESPN does a study saying $12.3 billion a month Is lost in the sports industry because of COVID. And 1.3 million jobs were furloughed. Well, you know, what do you do? And how do you get through it? Well, two years of introspection, and they did. And here's the reasons, and we talk about it in the Sport Business Handbook three big reasons why we survived and thrived in the sports business because of moving forward. Industry born out of necessity leads to creativity. Everybody understanding the evolution. 18 to 49-year-olds were watching one-third as much TV post-COVID instead of pre-COVID, but yet usage for small video and vignettes on phones went up 120 percent. So if you take advantage of that, you're going to succeed. Second, um, the best practices born out of natural selection, meaning if you're in college and now you focus on what the next step might be, this whole idea of name, image and likeness, we can talk about that, but where you're basically paying athletes to do endorsements, it's now grown into a billion five industry, wouldn't have happened because instead uh, unless you had the best practices discussions led by after the pandemic, and third, cooperation born out of urgency, 96% of these um, kids, 12 to 17, still call themselves sports fans. So what do you do? You regroup and you move forward. And boy, the industry has moved forward. The roaring 20s is not just the 1920s. It is just like Yankee Stadium was given significant public money to be rebuilt or built in the 19 teens to help get through the Spanish flu epidemic, we have some of the same stuff going on now, leading to our next Roaring Twenties. The Cowboys now finally playing well on the field, $8 billion net worth, the Yankees at six, maybe a little less now because I got to pair and judge. The NIL deal is a billion five. NFL TV contract, What's the number? $111 billion over a 10-year period. Imagine getting a check, opening your mailbox, getting a check for $111 billion. That's a lot of money. But you can also leverage it, you can borrow against it, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So the bottom line is the industry has come back with a vengeance. So what's the future like? Well, the last 50 years, that's all in this book, wrote the book called The Sport Business Handbook, Insights from 100-plus Leaders Who Shaped 50 Years in the Industry. We started with Paul Tagliabue, the NFL commissioner, who said, let me write a book with you on the industry. And then he said, let me write a few chapters. Then he said, let me write a chapter. And at the end of the day, it became a scheme where he called Jerry Colangelo. Jerry Colangelo called Coach K. Coach K called Steve Ross. Steve Ross called Don Shula, Don Shula called Bob Greasy. There are 130 mixes of industry leaders in here that have written chapters about moving forward and advice. And what they have to say is really interesting. There are a number of topics that they talk about that I've helped embrace. Imagine the end result. Don Shula talks about getting to perfection and what that means. I'll let that story speak for itself. Being flexible, NHL commissioner Gary Bettman talks about handling the work stoppage he had in hockey, but agreeing to be flexible in his negotiations. The NHL is now stronger than anybody imaginable. Win-win politically and otherwise. Oklahoma City Mayor Ron Norick, who was the author of the largest bond issue for sports facilities. Uh, ever, he talked about, and by the way, the the reason the Seattle Supersonics moved to Oklahoma City as the thunder, talked about creating a win-win situation for, for all concerned. Paul Tagliabue and Jack Nicklaus both talked about selling constantly. You don't think of Jack Nicklaus as a consummate salesman, but he does. Golf course design, everything else. Tagliabue the same way as to how he structured his league. Um, And there are others. But what's happening now in the next 50 years is hard to predict. We talked about 50-year anniversary of the top moments in the sports business. And they're in the book. It's interesting. Each one of the contributors was asked to give his top 50 list. And it coincides with 50 years of anniversary Every year. Last year, Munich massacre, title nine. This year, next year George Steinbrenner spends 10 million bucks to, to buy the Yankees 50 years ago. Hank Aaron hits 715 a year from that. So the book includes 50 examples over the last 50 years and it's interesting stuff to hear how these industry leaders perceive themselves. But what about what's coming? I can't tell you about the next 50 years. I, I can tell you about the next 50 quarters because things evolve so quickly in this industry uh, esports and gaming. You know, esports alone, $219 billion by 2024. And uh, the Saudi government, and we can talk about Liv eventually, but the Saudi government, it just put $8 billion into a national esports campaign, international esports campaign. So no doubt it's going to get bigger. Um, Gaming is part of that. Ninety percent of all of us that want to gamble remotely are able to do it by 2025, according to the American Gaming Association. Unfortunately, it may or may not include Florida, but you know that's another issue we can talk about. So, the idea of esports and gaming really important. Second, payments and currency, meaning. Cryptocurrency, how many, how many of you really understand it? Good, okay, well that makes none of us. And the, the idea of, of do we want to invest in it because we can turn a profit? Yeah, sure, everybody likes that idea. Crypto.com spent $750 million to fund an arena naming the arena that used to be Staples Center in LA. And FTX followed suit, but obviously FTX and suit are taking on an entirely different name now. Uh, And the bottom line of all of it is, it is an evolving industry. Survival of the fittest. Some will work, some will not. Prediction is at the end of the shakeout period. It's not as significant as people say it is today, but it sure will survive. So that's number two. Number three, Web 3.0. We've gotten into the internet, everybody understands, We've gotten to where the internet can be monetizing. We got that. And now the next step is where do sports rights fit in? Well, the idea of streaming is a great example because you can have every game of every sport. And uh, his honor, President Vaughn can attest to this. Uh, At Kaiser, if you want to stream every game that exists for any of your sports, there is a content and distribution way to do it. You monetize, you sponsor, it's important for the athletes, it's important for the programs, it's important for the schools. So the whole idea of web 3.0, and we could talk about it in Q&A, but that's very important in the future. Number four, venues. There are a lot of opportunities to think about stadiums of the future. Be smaller, flexible, television studios, multi-purpose, diverse catalysts for residential communities. There are a whole lot of things that facilities will be able to accomplish that they don't accomplish now. And why? Well, the big deal is because if you're building a business in sports, you've got to build a house first. And the house is the stadium, the arena, and everything attached to it. So that's going to be very important as well. And then finally, the 50 quarters prediction, globalization. So I just got back from Qatar. You know, we sophisticated people call it Qatar. You uninformed people call it Qatar. I don't really know the answer yet. Be in sports, which is the international broadcaster who's located in Qatar slash Qatar, says Qatar. Many say Qatar in an accent. Uh, that's okay. No, it's it's fun to talk about, but here's the point: um, everybody was on cell phones watching the Cowboys and the uh, the Giants last Thanksgiving in a stadium at the World Cup because that can be carried on Qatar Qatar television, and there is no difference except for a four-second latency, the delay, between watching and listening to the games on cutter television or radio uh, and doing it in um, Spitzbergen, doing it in Greenland. Um, do we still own Greenland? It's another story. Uh, and and, and so, so all of those issues are very important because we in the industry are thinking of globalization basically as one. So future, esports, payments, web, venues, and globalization. We'll visit all of that time to time. So then finally, I told you about the where do you go and the business issues to kind of learn in this industry. And I mentioned a few of the items that I, I thought were important to me because they were ratified by these industry leaders in the book. The book talks about significant business principles uh, for success. And I've written a number four books to kind of evolve those principles. And many of them were ratified, as I said earlier in the presentation. Imagine the end result. Well, that's my comment about thinking about sports facilities in front of you. And Don Shula, basically, imagine the perfect season. Being flexible, you got to be able to give people what they want, and that's what Gary Bettman talked about in negotiation. Win-win, not just in politics, but, but in life, uh, giving somebody the ability to save face and to move forward. Uh, selling, you know, I'm a salesman all the time, sometimes too much over the top, but so is Paul Tagliabue, so are Jack Nicklaus. But the two issues that I wanted to end on that are unique, not unique, but really important to me. Resilience, uh, get up when you're knocked down, uh, find the peak after the valley. Uh, I've gotten 100 some odd stadium deals done in my life and uh, about 40 some of them were public votes. Well, about 18 of them had resounding defeats and then you had to come back and wait and regroup and not cry and not ball up in a little ball. But you have to take the next step. What is the next step? How do you succeed when nobody else wants to? Everybody can use a different metaphor. The going gets rough, then the rough get going, all of that stuff. But the bottom line is it's a really important piece of how I live my life. And, and then finally, what I really do want to end on, passion. I think my father probably instilled passion uh, for me in 66 when he saw me for the last time anyway on earth and he instilled in me some way to be unique, way to honor him, way to give to the community in a way that they probably didn't know much about sports as economic development, community pride, all of those things. But imagine something greater than yourself and then building all of these things and bringing them to crescendo. I don't get involved in projects, in relationships, anything else that I don't feel absolutely passionate about. And that's the way I've lived the last X years and that's the way I'm going to live the next 50. And as we go forward for the next 50 years and 50 quarters, you live in a dynamic community, a dynamic state, uh, and a dynamic industry, I am absolutely lucky to be a relatively small part of it. And I thank you all very much for your listening and your support. Well, remember the perspective from the presentation is basically that in 2020, we got shut down. Rudy Gobert started a trend after his positive test. Industry effectively shut down for at least a year, but then recovering faster than ever, leading to what we think is the roaring 20s, not just the 1920s, as they recovered from the Spanish flu epidemic and through infrastructure money at Yankee Stadium and otherwise to help recover. So too, in the 2020s, we're going to see, as we're seeing already, significant investment, creativity, practices born out of natural selection, cooperation, and obviously, a significant move forward, survival of the fittest, to take us to the next level, as only a major industry shakeup could provide. Is it 1.3 trillion? Might have been down to 1.1, and soon it's going to be 1.5 and even more. And that was the presentation, and hope it significantly improved the perspective from some people. And let's look at the sports gaming minute. FanDuel and DraftKings were approved by uh, the Massachusetts uh, Commission uh, for temporary sports licenses ahead of March. Ballybet. FanDuel, DraftKings, Betway, PointBet, all allowed to suggest doing business, and the bottom line is to try to generate revenue, brick and mortar, but also ahead of Super Bowl, ahead of Final Four, and the like. The bill's passage came at the last minute, before formal legislative sessions ended for the year, and protracted negotiations would follow, but now... We're in the implementation stage, so too good for Massachusetts. How about sports tech? Swimming Australia taps Tech Mahindra for a technology partnership. Their national body is trying to deliver an elite competitive advantage to boost the sports appeal among fans. And the Indian origin ICT consulting and services firm Tech Mahindra its official technology partner a mirror of tennis australia's ongoing partnership with consulting rival Infosys, the arrangement will see tech mahindra provide technology support across all facets of sport including the areas of high performance participation fan engagement and administration ahead of the paris 2024 olympic and paralympic games courtesy of cutting-edge data analytics and platforms As well as enhancing the fan engagement through an improved and hyper personalized user experience another move in the tech space as the industry continues to skyrocket in innovation and partnership you think it might be fairly small sports not really and obviously significant revenue in australia and other countries now let's finally end as we normally do with the good sports 5 Glover Teixeira announces his retirement from the UFC following his loss to Jamal Hill and now that the UFC has to find others not just to generate excitement but philanthropy as well. The Gulf War erupts in Formula One as 27 billion Bohemoth aus Emrys to establish dominance. The F1 circus travels throughout the world and because of its jam-packed race calendar, amid all this, Air travel becomes a necessity. As a result, F1 becomes an excellent field for airlines to advertise. And obviously, at the end of 2022, Formula One ended its sponsorship with Dubai-based Emirates. After all of a a, a decade of partnership, they won't be a sponsor. And sportsbusiness.com has suggested that they've claimed a new airline partner to replace Emirates. It'll be Qatar Airways after uh, Qatar Airways, some would say after the world cup, moving to the next level and obviously more philanthropy available. Three finalists emerge as LeBron James's son narrows down his college list. LeBron James's kid Bronny, Ohio State, for example, is LeBron's favorite school. Oregon is Phil Knight's alma mater and there may be others. What a significant time for his announcement. Legendary Georgia Tech wide receiver Demarius Thomas added to the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame class not just as on the field but is off the field stuff and Fanatic Sportsbook officially launches with a retail location in Maryland that's their first look for them to be a significant player in the in the space but also to provide much needed funds for the philanthropic world post-pandemic as well. We'd like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping prepare. I hope you enjoyed the perspective on the sport business at 50 and all it entails. We're looking forward to you participating next week and in subsequent weeks inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. Sports professor Rick Harrow, speak with you soon.